0: The dulcet tones of that chanting belong to Moscow Mayor Sergei Sebyanin, who last Sunday joined a large indoor crowd of fellow United Russia supporters that included many unmasked merrymakers. Anyway, they gathered to celebrate the party's win in parliamentary elections throughout the country, and particularly right at home there in Moscow, in the Moscow region, where electronic votes made all the difference and delivered victory to the Kremlin's favored candidates. About a week since those elections ended, opposition groups led by the Communist Party's Moscow branch are now trying to challenge the e-voting results. And they've even tried to stage a few small protests. But the city says it's still a public safety issue during the pandemic. When Mayor Sabyanin has time, maybe somebody in the opposition can ask him to explain how he managed to assemble so many people last weekend. Just don't ask him for a permit. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda, ladies and gentlemen. The Hello there, you're listening to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, Medusa's English Language Managing Editor. The podcast is back After about three months hiatus, so boom, season two of The Naked Pravda begins now. As I indicated with the opening of this show, today we're going to be focusing on electronic voting in Moscow last weekend. On this subject, you'll hear from special guests, Dr. Tatyana Mikhailova, a Moscow-based economist, and Lisa Fokt, a reporter at BBC Russia. Both women followed the voting results very carefully, and they were kind enough to come share some of their insights here on this podcast. Before we turn to that main story, however, I'm going to run through a few other news events this week in what is a new part of this show. So some of these stories might be grim, some of them might be lighthearted. Generally, I'm going to try to have a light heart even when things are grim. That tends to be my whole life outlook. So with that in mind, let's get to our first segment, which I'm calling, You Can't Do That. There's a Russian YouTube series about the misadventures of Vitali Nalivkin, a fictional municipal official in a town in Russia's Primorsky Krai. It's a comedy show. For example, in the latest episode, Nalivkin shows up at a bus stop where the cops have found an abandoned bag they believe could contain a bomb. Ever the hero, and ever eager to blow up stuff, Nalivkin is soon armed with a shoulder-mounted rocket launcher, which he then fires at the bag, in an effort to disarm it. He misses twice, first blowing up a billboard advertisement situated right next to the bus stop that's promoting Russia's parliamentary elections, and specifically the political party United Russia. The second time he fires this thing, he hits the bus stop, but the bag remains intact. So finally, he decides to open the bag up himself, and he discovers that it's full of carrots. And then they find the man who left it there, and he's soon dragged away by the authorities. Now, the real police in Primorsky Cry apparently did not enjoy this performance. Earlier this week, they arrested two actors from the show, and local courts then sentenced them to two and ten days in jail, respectively, on charges of public obscenity. I guess one of the actors cussed in front of some people, and also for impersonating an officer of the law, because one of the the actress of these two actually parodies the official spokesperson for the Russian. Interior Affairs Ministry. You can't do that. Now, moving on, in the wake of last week's decisions by Apple and Google to cease support for Alexei Navalny's mobile apps on their operating systems on devices inside Russia, the Russian social network Vkontakte, which is like the Russian Facebook, it's big, it's very popular, people love it, it has now started blocking the accounts of former Navalny office supervisors in cities across Russia. Spokespeople for the company say the move is necessary to avoid multi-million ruble fines for failing to comply with orders from Russia's Attorney General's office and from the federal censor, which insists that Team Navalny's advocacy for unpermitted demonstrations and strategic voting it all amounts to illegal, maybe even extremist activity, given that Navalny's whole movement has been designated as extremist. The methods Fkontakte is using to flag Team Navalny's content, however, aren't totally clear. For example, one of the accounts blocked in this new campaign belongs to a woman named Elvira Dmitrieva, who admittedly was Navalny's campaign chief in Kazan. But that was only true until about two years ago, when she died from a long battle with an illness. At any rate, if you're a former Navalny campaign official, don't expect to be posting much on social media in the years to come. You can't do that. In fact, former Navalny staff are getting all kinds of exciting lessons in uh, what is and is not protected speech this week. In Krasnoyarsk, for example, the authorities have charged a local activist named Natalia Piterimova with propagating supposedly extremist symbols because of old photos available on Instagram showing her picketing with a sign that featured the Navalny logo. Now, the thing about the Navalny logo is that it's just a red exclamation mark against a white background inside a rectangle. Visually, of course, it looks like the Cyrillic N, signifying Navalny's name, but it is ultimately just punctuation. That at least is what a layman might say. The linguists and police officers in Krasnyarsk will argue otherwise when the case goes to trial next month. Pityrimova faces up to 15 days in jail if convicted. She thought it would be okay to leave up these photos with her and her picket sign and the double meaning exclamation mark, but she should have known better. You can't do that. Folks, at its very core, The Naked Pravda is a podcast where I, uh, an American guy, focus nearly all of my attention on Russia, Russians, and their Russian ways. In this sense, always watching from across the globe at events unfolding so far away, I'm not unlike many of the most prominent figures in the Russian state media and the Russian state. In talk show appearances, in posts on social media, in press conferences and interviews, many of these people... Never shut up about the West, especially the United States. So let's take a moment to ask, what's new with the West? <music> Have you ever heard the name Margarita Simonyan? She's the editor-in-chief of Russia Today, RT. She's also the editor-in-chief of the news agency, Russia Segodnya, which means Russia Today but it's actually a separate entity. We don't need to get into that. They're both state-owned, of course, and they're both pillars of what... Eh, something. I don't know. independent journalism, surely, but rest assured they are important if the federal spending is any indication. This week, while appearing on Vladimir Solovyov's talk show, also on state television, Semenyan predicted that within a decade, politicians, state officials, maybe even school teachers in the, what she calls the liberal fascist West won't be able to get elected or hold a job unless they're in what she described as an inclusive marriage. And by that she means any white man will find it impossible to stay employed unless he's married to a member of the LGBT community or someone of another race. And Simeon didn't stop there. Then in a five-minute, nearly uninterrupted monologue, she explained that reverse racism in the U.S. has hijacked America's national ideology and it's left the world clamoring for leadership based on traditional values. And you know what? Semenyan thinks that Russia can help there, help provide that. Now, in a different broadcast, on the same show, this is still Solovyov's show, same week, Foreign Affairs Ministry spokesman Maria Zakharova responded to the European Union's criticism of Russia's parliamentary elections. The EU said that voting took place in a climate of fear. Zakharova says there was indeed fear But it was Russians' fear as a nation in the face of potentially more European sanctions, which the European Parliament threatened just days before voting started in Russia. The Europeans are the ones that were talking sanctions and non-recognition of the election results before the elections were even done. And Zakharova says that's tantamount to intimidation. She also denounced criticism of election monitoring in Russia, pointing out that Russia allows more foreign observers than countries like Germany or the United States. And the only domestic election observers that the West is willing to trust, she says, are the same supposedly independent groups that live on Western money. So they're not independent at all, she told viewers. Moving off television into the newspaper world, last week, Russian Security Council Secretary Nikolai Patrushev, the man with a thousand conspiracy theories, pause this audio right now and go Google his mind-reading research into Madeleine Albright's territorial designs on Siberia. You'll thank me later. Anyway, Patrushev granted an interview to the newspaper Argumenti Factum. Arguments and facts. I'm sorry, I have a hard time switching between Russian and my, you know, soaring American accent. Anyway, the text of Patrushev's interview is full of pearls of wisdom and insight. For example, he says that the West is abolishing the words mother and father, replacing them with digits, you know, numbers, and also they're on the cusp of legalizing marriage between people and animals. Now, the U.S. government-funded media outlet Current Time ran an amusing, if somewhat defensive, headline about this interview that read, Russian Security Council Secretary Petrushev says in some places in the West, it's come to legalizing marriage with animals. This is not true. (laughs) Good save there at the end, Current Time. I I hope not too many readers were worried before they got to that bit. Petrushev also accused the United States of being the world's leading instigator of unrest, obviously. Each of Washington's misadventures abroad ruins the life of the population there, and it also destabilizes the entire region. And naturally, he mentions Afghanistan. Why wouldn't you? He says it's led to a migrant crisis, not unlike Western interventions in the past in the Middle East and Northern Africa. Also, according to Petrushev, the EU is run by bureaucrats in the pockets of big corporations. And uh, also, one more thing, the Russian-speaking communities in the Baltic states are basically living under a modern-day apartheid. That's the West for you. Pretty awful, really. Okay, so that brings us to our main story this week, electronic voting in Moscow, in the region's single-mandate races for seats in the state Duma. One of the key things to understand about these contests is that multiple opposition candidates were ahead in in-person voting, and then they lost their leads after the e-votes were added into the final tallies, and they were added late, hours after the polls closed. And in Moscow, several hours after all the other electronic votes in other regions had been released. Now, when we're talking about the opposition candidates, this includes four Communist Party candidates. It includes independent candidate Anastasia Brukhanova, and there's yablika's Sergei Mitrokhin. In the week since voting ended, the campaign teams for several of these losing opposition candidates have compiled and presented evidence that they say proves voter fraud in the online ballots. Specifically, analysts working with Anastasia Brukhanova say they reconstructed the e-voting in 30-minute intervals, and they mapped the percentage of ballots cast during those intervals for the different candidates. They say the patterns found in this graph and the timing of sudden spikes in votes that repeat for all the United Russia candidates can only be explained by fraud. To understand this better, I spoke to Dr. Tatyana Mikhailova, an economist who teaches at Moscow's New Economic School, and who's followed these elections very closely and written about them on her Facebook page. And just so there's no confusion, the views that Dr. Mikhailova expresses here are hers alone and not her employer's.
1: It's highly unlikely that in every of the 15 electoral districts, the shares are equal pair by pair, you know, that in one district, they are equal, and in the other district, they're also equal, and all other demographical variables between the districts differ. So usually, we have more districts that are more for the opposition and districts that are more loyal, simply because the demographics vary. Incomes vary, ages, and so on. And you would expect that in traditionally the loyal district, there will be more people mobilizing to vote for United Russia, fewer. People mobilizing to vote with a paper for their position, but it's not the case. We see equal groups everywhere, and this is just implausible. So that's the first thing that suggests something is wrong. The second, the sheer number of these voter shifts. I I saw a lot of electoral statistics in my life, and this is something that really, the shifts are really extraordinary. Usually they're much smaller, but something like this happens naturally, that people self-sort. And if you look at the hour-by-hour picture, there's more interesting pictures are coming up still. Apparently, there's some influx of people voting for the United Russia candidates right in the morning of the last day. This is, this is Sunday, right? So this is not, these are not people who work in some kind of state enterprises, uh, state-controlled. Enterprises, or like in some states, some you know, hospitals or schools or something from the infrastructure uh, sector, they could possibly vote loyally because, because they like the bosses that tell them so. So, these people are on this is a weekend, they're whole, so they cannot be mobilized in the workplace, but somehow they mobilized and they vote synchronously in all the districts at the same time, they massively vote. And then this boating stops at forty uh, at fourteen hours exact. So from uh, like it, it's one hour forty five minutes PM they are still boating, and at two hours fifteen minutes PM they stopped boating and this intensity of voting goes down uh, a lot. And uh, this is just implausible. I think this this, this was. Uh, exactly the uh, kind of manipulation that people are talking about.
0: Mikhailova's argument is similar to what Maxim Gongolsky, a physicist helping Bruchanova's campaign with data analysis, told Radio Svoboda earlier this week. Gongolsky argues that visualizing the progress on Moscow's online elections shows three phases of voting, what he calls the slow ballot stuffing on Friday and Saturday, followed by rapid ballot stuffing on Sunday until about 2 p.m., at which point you get the third phase of free and apparently unmanipulated voting for just those last few hours of the elections. He's convinced that the ballot stuffing was happening even during days one and two because all 15 United Russia candidates in all 15 voting districts across the region benefited from an identical pattern of voter support. That's impossible, says Gungalski because even the regime's candidates are different. He's convinced that somebody gained administrative access to the city's online voting system. Now, using Gungolsky's research, Brukhanova went on YouTube and argued that the cleaned e-voting results were actually in her favor. But this claim relies on a little bit of magic. My understanding is that she's, she's just taking what she describes as the free phase at the very end on Sunday and saying this is what the natural voting looks like? Or did she do something to all the votes? Did her team clean the votes beforehand as well?
1: They they took the last portion of the clean votes when this uh, crazy voting stopped at 14 hours, And then they essentially replaced all what happened before with this same trends that they saw in the last hours. It's not really a perfectly clean exercise because you have to take into account that people who are conservative and maybe they're more loyal to the United Russia, tend to be, tend to be older and they tend to vote earlier. We see this in the paper, in the um, districts as well, because uh, when you open the the, the district, uh, when you open the polling place, at first elderly people come, people of old age come, and the younger generation usually comes in the evening towards the end, to the close of polling station. They
0: procrastinate.
1: Yeah, they procrastinate, exactly. <laughs> that, and then for some reason, the demographics look this. I've worked in the election for 10 years, and I've seen this all many times. So that is that uh, naturally, in this electronic voting, you will see the same pattern. So the, the votes for the United Russia candidates should be fired in the morning, and then they go down slowly toward the evening. So maybe you could uh, deduce this uh, Trend a little bit at the end of the day, but that's not really clean. So you allow for for a little bit higher share of the vote in the morning. But under that, uh, I think it's uh, it's a really natural natural way to actually try to guess what what really happened.
0: I see. But when they talk about cleaned votes, that should be there should be some caution with how we see that because it's not. Ex- they haven't actually gone through and found the false votes because they don't know which ones are false. They just know that the trends are unnatural.
1: Yes, exactly. So th- this is simply statistical access. This is something that we can probably deduce from the, the data, but we can know, never know for sure.
0: Does anybody know for sure? Do you think the people with admin access, they actually have the real numbers somewhere?
1: I think uh, the, admi- the presidential administration people who oversee these elections, of course, not officially, but unofficially, know exactly all the numbers. (laughs) So they know that we know that we know that they know, and they know that we know that they know. (laughs)
0: For insights into last weekend's elections, I also turn to Lisa Focht, a reporter with BBC Russia who followed the races closely and wrote an excellent article ahead of the voting about the various dirty tricks used against opposition candidates across the country, particularly candidates running as nominees from the Communist Party. We're talking registration of doppelganger rivals, guys with the same name, and even photoshopped matching beards. We're talking planted stories in the media to associate say, the communists with convicted rapists, and a whole lot more. Now, needless to say, once again, Lisa's comments here represent her personal opinions, her views, not the views of her employer. Now, the first thing I asked her about was why the late-arriving e-votes in Moscow are any different from the mail-in ballots that swung the race for Joe Biden in the United States last year. So, to an international audience that, that, were, that followed... Last year's, you know, like late ballot drama in the U.S. with all the the mail-in votes and oh gosh, they're coming in late and Trump looks ahead, but hold on, wait a second, now they're favoring Biden and now Biden's ahead and he's the winner. So anybody who followed that and is now seeing the late arrival of these electronic votes in Moscow, you know, that tipped the scales and pushed the authorities favored candidates, the candidates of United Russia ahead in these state Duma races and sort of you know took victory away from what looked like it was going to be the opposition's victory people who are watching that they might now be thinking well this is just what happens when they when electorates behave differently depending on whether they re- they vote remotely or in person after all you know the, the as far as i understand it, the opposition encouraged their s- supporters to vote in person f- being afraid of being afraid of you know fraud or whatever so that's th- that's a comparison that's Maybe I'm the only one making that, but it seems like it's, it's plausible at least superficially, but I'm also aware that there are, you know, considerable flaws with that comparison. Can you explain for me and for listeners what's the big difference here between, you know, what what people might know about the t- 2020 presidential election in the United States and what just happened in Moscow's electronic voting for state Duma races?
2: The main difference here, even though there are certainly some similarities, is that mail-in votes in America, can be easily recounted, and at the end of the day, they were like same ballots, just sent delivered by mail, right? And we even saw them being recounted in Arizona, if I remember that correctly. And with electronic votes in Moscow, that's basically well impossible. We don't have uh, physical copies of that, and that, of course created distrust i'm pretty sure that computer scientists who are listening to us now they're like no i mean they're not that different from like physical copies but this is what like you know ordinary people think think about that so i think another issue is that in america those delays in counting the Votes were mostly caused by uh, Republican legislatures, which made it impossible to start counting the votes until all the polling stations were closed and the election day was basically over. And in Moscow, in fact, votes that had been cast at the polling stations were counted faster than the electronic votes. And it made no sense for so many people because that was the opposite of what was expected, what was promised, what was introduced, especially given the fact that this year we had this electronic voting system in seven regions. And in six regions, it was the whole system was built and operated by the central election committee and Ross Telecom, a telecommunication company. And in Moscow, it was operated by the Moscow Mayor Office. And those votes from six regions, they I think they, they, they we had the, the results maybe like an hour, an hour and a half after the polling stations were closed. And in Moscow it took more than twelve hours, maybe even more to, 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 count them. And I remember how me and my colleagues, we waited for like, till like 4 AM in the morning in the bureau, hopelessly waiting for them because we couldn't believe it, like their electronic vote, like what what people imagine is they just, you know, like, I don't know, like push the button Mm -hmm. and here we go. This is our result, but this is not what, what happened. The opposition believes that people responsible for the electronic voting were committing fraud and it took them several hours to interfere with the blockchain and everything and this is why it took so long but we don't you know like we don't know what happened but i also think that it's about trust like you mentioned america many people in america still believe that the dems stole trump's victory right despite all the explanations that seem so legitimate to to other people right and say with russia that 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 there are people who don't trust the government the election committee the kremlin and this whole system with this history of election fraud and there's you know and this is just they they don't believe that it could take so long to count the votes
0: is the revoting thing now i've seen i've kind of i I haven't quite understood because i feel like i've seen conflicting arguments here it seems like some will argue that some are arguing that the revoting was used to create fraud that people actually that people with admin access to the to the voting platform actually took votes cast for opposition candidates and switch them to votes for United Russia candidates. But I've also seen arguments that no, the revoting thing doesn't seem to have been a big deal in the fraud. That the the fraud was literally just ballot stuffing. It was just fake ballots dropped on on the on the United Russia candidates. Do you have a sense of which of these arguments is more persuasive?
2: To be honest, I don't. I think we need to you know discuss some context here. So uh, one of the arguments for having this feature. Allowing people to change their minds was to make sure that no one votes under pressure. So, first day of voting was Friday. And Friday morning, there were lines in front of some polling stations in Moscow and other cities, and the website for the electronic voting that was, you know, down, had so many bugs and everything. And I talked to more than 15. So state dependent voters like state employees and people who, you know, work for like government companies from different cities across Russia. And they're all told me kind of like the same story that their management nicely asked them to vote specifically on Friday and in Moscow case to do that through this electronic voting system. And this campaign started like weeks before the election, people were asked to sign up for this electronic voting system, also to maybe register their friends and family and everything. And most of them told me that they do not get any instructions about who to vote for. But what we also know that some people believe that their votes can be monitored through this system. And of course, it creates fear. And by the way, uh, Ella Panfilova she dismissed those accusations because on election night, one of the journalists told her that his friends His friend who works in gas industry was forced to vote for United Russia for the system. And she said that that can be true. Our people are not idiots. You can, you know, like tell them what to do. So that was officially dismissed by officials. But again, I talked to 15 people in different cities and they were asked to vote on on Friday.
0: Electronically? Yeah,
2: in Moscow electronically.
0: Did they then go home and change their vote? If they didn't want to have voted that way, or
2: well, so some pe- yeah. So some people believe that this is what happened. They 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 vote like a clarity for I don't know, we don't know for for whom. Maybe took screenshots, sent you know, like to their management that we voted, it's it's okay. And then in the evening, they decided to re vote, or maybe I don't know, maybe there are people who just changed their mind and thought, you know what, you know, just Russia, I don't, I don't like them, I'm gonna vote for like communists or. Uh, I don't know, whatever. Right. So, and yeah, some people believe that because of that, it took them so long to count the votes because they had actually, they actually had to recount them and recount them ever and ever again to make sure that the system, that the system, that, the, that, 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 the last vote that someone cast is in the system, not, not, not the first one. Right. So yeah, this is the official explanation.
0: One of the major scandals to emerge in the election's aftermath is the role Echo Muscovy radio station editor-in-chief Alexei Venediktov has played in publicly defending the e-voting results. Chairing the city's public election monitoring committee, Venediktov has promoted e-voting, he's promoted the option to re-vote, and he's publicly clashed with various opposition candidates, arguing that their online voter support mirrors the supposedly suspicious patterns evident in the votes for United Russia candidates. Speaking through his lawyer in a post on social media, jailed opposition figure Alexei Navalny even referred to Venediktov as a former journalist and argued that he should be put on trial for election fraud. I asked Lisa how significant she thinks Venediktov's support for e-voting is with voters in Moscow.
2: Well, maybe it is uh, significant for people from my echo chamber, but I don't think that it makes a difference for normal people like any difference whatsoever. Because, yeah, we understand this argument. Because Venedict, yeah, Venedict is the head of the last liberal radio station in Russia, which is owned by Gazprom. But still, I mean, it's liberal, it's independent. They have like Navalny and supporters there on air and everything. And this is why some people are so upset because what they think is by, you know, like that his reputation is on the table to kind of like defend and secure the reputation of the electronic voting system. But even if that was the plan, it kind of like didn't work because I, I I don't know if there are any people who are like, you know what, yeah, it's kind of weird, but Benedict you know, like has been cheerleading for this feature, this system for a while, so that probably means it's okay, it's fine. I don't know people like that. So if that was the plan, it didn't work. And I think it's just like pointless to fight over that over and over again. And like, it's like Russian Twitter has been just, you know, like a terrible place recently because, you know, like people, you know, discuss Venediktov and whether he's the one to blame or maybe it's Moscow, Mayor Sabatian and Putin. Oh, by the way, it's another important argument that this, the, the 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 electronic voting system is in in moscow as i said was was billed and it's operated by the moscow mayor office and Sabanyan, well t- like ross and the central election committee they're technically neutral but Sabanyan is not and before the election he published the list of candidates that he basically you know supports and the list you know, only consists of United Russia candidates and independents backed by United Russia. And what a miracle, the old one. And last but not least, because of the electronic vote. So, you know, it also creates distrust. Right.
0: So you're saying if if, if we're going to pinpoint a conflict of interest, Svyonians might be more significant than Benedictus.
2: <laughs> well, that's what I think. At the end of the day, that's much more important because I mean, he is a, he's he's Sabanin is an official. Venediktov, again, he's a journalist. So I, I don't think that if Venediktov, you know, like hadn't been there, the outcome would have been that different, or we would have, you know, like different arguments right now. I, I don't think it's just like that important, that significant.
0: Another thing that happened ahead of the elections is that foreigners rediscovered Russia's Communist Party, which had. Its best showing at the polls in a decade. Some of the media coverage still described last weekend as a clash primarily between the Putin regime and Alexei Navalny's Smart Vote initiative. And it's true that Smart Vote predominantly endorsed the communists, but the party clearly has some momentum all its own. Though even here, Navalny and his team have a role to play. I asked Lisa if people in the West should worry that this will revive Stalinism somehow or reanimate Lenin's corpse.
2: Personally, I think this is the most interesting story in Russian politics right now, because that was obvious that like the communist party is the second biggest party in Russia, right? The, they, 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 have like the, uh, most number of seats after United Russia in, 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 state Duma. And that was obvious that they were going to benefit from the smart voting system, you know, like proposed by Navalny and, 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 and his team. And it's also very interesting how last year the. We're actually the only party that urged their voters to vote against the constitutional amendments proposed by Vladimir Putin that reset the clock on his like presidential terms, right? And even Putin said that it was really strange. And this year they voted against some of the most, you know, like famous, prominent repressive laws, but they supported other repressive laws. So it's kind of like ambiguous here. And it's really interesting how, how, how they transformed recently. They have so many new faces, like this guy, Nikolai Bundarenka with this nickname of like Red Navalny, who he's from, he's from Saratov and he's a very popular uh, YouTube blogger with his like videos where he mocks his like colleagues from United Russia. So many new faces and yes, they also suffered from this, you know, like method where the, in some constituencies, they had rivals with like the the same last names as their candidates, which we, we, we all probably heard of like Boris Vishnevsky case in St. Petersburg, but people certainly heard maybe less about what was happening in Moscow. And that was the case in Moscow. And I I, I mean, it's really interesting what's going to happen for them, because on election night, Mfilova said that she was not happy with the way communists behaved in regions where they she says that that they tried to interfere with the work of uh, local election committees and she even compared them to uh, like Navalny's people which was like really really unusual because the communists they're very well built into the system and now we we basically in my opinion have those two wings like the federal wings led by its leader like Gennady Zuganov who was he He's always been like very clear about like Navalny, that he's a criminal and they're like a bit more conservative. And then we have this like Moscow wing led by Valery Rashkin, the head of the Communist Party in Moscow. And I think in at the Kremlin's eyes, they probably flirted a bit too much with Navalny and the smart voting. And now you probably heard that they called for like protests and they consta- they contested. The, the electronic, the, the, the system, the, the, the results of, oh my God, what, what did they contest? They contested the results of the electronic voting in Moscow and called for protests. And Zuganov's narrative was very, very different. If, if, you, if you take a look at that, he just said that we did a good job. People heard us, you know, we gave more seats, which is true. So it's really, really interesting for me what's going to happen to this like radical wing because I... It's, you know, really hard to imagine that it can go unpunished. Because, like, again, flirting with Navalny, it's not allowed. It's, like, out of the question.
0: You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English-language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, episode one of season two, you heard from economist Tatiana Mikhailova and BBC reporter Lisa Fokt about data irregularities and the politics of e-voting in Moscow. The Naked Provid is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English language show, and I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are tuning in to help with this program in front of more people. The more reviews that are, the more the algorithm, I don't know, lifts it up for somebody who doesn't know about the show yet. Also, if you value Medusa's reporting, whether in English or Russian, please consider making a donation at supportmedusa.io to help sustain our work. Recurring pledges help more, but we will take whatever you can spare, of course. Thanks for listening and come back soon.